0: Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/slash recommend today.
1: Welcome into the Audson Audibles Podcast. I'm at Premier Rex Couple Jared Mack on the show. Welcome to your Wednesday edition. Uh, we're gonna talk uh, some historic news for the basketball programs at Oregon for both the men and the women. They combined to do something pretty special. Um, but first we're gonna discuss a couple uh notes on the football team, they did land the verbal commitment, um, from justice Lowe, a three-star athlete out of Lake Oswego high school. Uh, one of the state of Oregon's best players. He's at the Polynesian bowl. That's where he gave his verbal commitment. Um, he's the fourth best player in the state. Uh, this is now Oregon's second verbal commitment from in state prospects, uh, a player guys that. He was kind of under the radar all fall. And then at the very end of the year, Utah decided to throw him a scholarship offer. He took the offer and didn't end up signing with the Utes for whatever reason. I'm sure they're pretty bummed about that. And it led to Florida, Notre Dame, Arizona state, Oregon, all offering scholarships, uh, USC offering a scholarship uh, to justice low. One of the, you know, guys that blew up the last couple weeks and he's now a duck. Yeah. What we're seeing right
2: now are a lot of the top prospects available are guys that had big senior seasons. And because of that have, I guess, have more options to explore. Um, Morgan's also on and on a running back, Andrew Paul from the Texas area who's just got basically all the big boy offers. And he went into the, the fall with, with none. Um, same kind of deal with low. And I, 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 I think based on watching his film, you can kind of see why so many schools were in on him and, and why he had such a, a big ascension from, again, kind of unknown player. I mean, Matt, I know you saw him play against Sheldon High School. We t- we've been off air talking about this, and you didn't really know who he was. This was, I don't know, sometime in the fall. And afterwards, you were like, that guy, that guy is going to play somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> um, and that's just—I mean—that's just your example. But watching the whole film, it comes across too. Go ahead if you want to share some of your thoughts on that because I thought that was kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, I, I went just to to go watch a family friend that played on the Sheldon team. I had no intentions to do any kind of work um, at all. I, I knew nothing about the team that was on Lake Oswego. Um, I knew a little bit about Sheldon. Those are two of the best teams in the state of Oregon, though, and. I remember watching the game, just going, who is this receiver? He's big. He, he's bigger than everybody else uh, out in the secondary or in the perimeter on offense. He's fast, and and Sheldon had no answer for him. And then at the end of the game, I got a hold of a roster and just Googled his name. It's like, oh, wow, I, I figured that guy was someone that had, you know, the entire Mountain West after him. And he had a couple offers, but it wasn't anything – insane yet. And I was just, that didn't make sense. He just looks like a Pac-12 or a Mountain West caliber player. Um I felt like probably better than, than the Mountain West, but I just figured because he's in Oregon, he's a no-name guy in my eyes, it, didn't know who he was. He's probably going to be that second level. And sure enough, after his film got out and school saw him, he turned into one of the most sought after players th- this cycle.
2: Yeah, yeah, you, yeah this, I think this is a really key addition for Oregon. By the way, we said athlete, he's going to play receiver. At least that's where they're recruiting him to play initially. We've talked on this podcast a lot about a need to fill that position group. Um, I don't know exactly how ready he is to contribute right away. Um, he's a little slight of build at about 180. Um, but the guy has a lot of intangibles. And I think that's what stood out. like I, I went in thinking, okay, he's, he's kind of just all speed. There's not a whole lot of um, maybe possession receiving skills. Maybe he's not much of a threat to make plays. In jump ball situations in the end zone, but he kind of does it all. Um, I think a really versatile player and one where I, you know, I think one of the things I'm curious is how does his speed translate? Because I mean, that really is what differentiates him from a lot of the high school talent is he gets in the open field and, and he's gone, or he just takes the top off a of defense and he's 10 yards behind the the defender on a deep pass. And, and it's just, that's easy touchdown. Um, several of those on his film, but I'll be curious to see how that translates to college football. You know, he's an 11-0, you know, flat 100-meter runner, um, which is not elite, elite speed, but pretty darn fast. Um, I would love to see more 100-meter times. I think that was the only open 100 he ran in 21. And then there was no season in 2020. And in 2019, he's a freshman in high school. So um, trying to figure out what his actual top-end speed is something I'm curious on because if that translates, I I think he can contribute sooner than later at Oregon. And frankly, with the numbers, Oregon, is kind of faced with right now receiver, and I'm sure there'll be more additions. I think they probably will see Justice Lowe play a little bit as a freshman in 2022, unless there's a lot of additions or other players step up that we're unaware of or moves on offense, you know, position-wise. But I think this is a great addition and one you kind of need it in the short term. Yeah, I mean, this is
3: going to be someone who just has to play just purely based off numbers. Um, I'm not sure how much he'll play. Um, just like you guys, you know, I, I like his tape, but – um this is a this is a top-end speed guy more than anything else um he's got a good frame he's listed at 6.1 182 on 24 7 sports um so I do believe that with his speed and that frame and the ability to grow and add muscle and things like that um that's kind of why he's this second wave of prospects that get all the big boy offers like Matt was talking about um and yeah, so you see that a lot at this time of, of year where, you know, top end guys are already gone and now you have to look for guys who are uh, potential breakout candidates for their senior year and get in there and offer them, um, you know, right at the end of it all. But I like Justice Lowe. Obviously, fills a position of need. Recruiting him as a wide receiver is, is a good for a primary position. Um, I do feel like that his top end speed could be, potentially something down the road if if Oregon really needs a corner or something like that and maybe a safety with his size. Um, he's listed as an athlete on 24-7. Um, I'm sure he would prefer to play wide receiver, and I'm sure that's where Oregon is going to start him. But just as a backup or like a worst-case scenario, I think he has the frame and the speed to do something at corner or in the secondary, um, which is good for Oregon because right now that's – Kind of the type of player that you need, someone with positional versatil- versatility, and um, Justice Low fits that, I think, to the highest degree. Um, but uh, yeah, I think this is a an important addition for Oregon's recruiting uh, recruiting 2022 class. Uh, it's not. I, I don't know if it's what everybody would would hope for in terms of like the star value or anything like that. But that's this is a good in-state person. Um, Oregon still is is has more in-state people to go after. Um, But it's always important to get, you know, the the top-of-the-line players in your own state and keep them at home, Um, especially when they have, you know, these new offers from Notre Dame and ASU and USC and things like that. Uh, So it's a good pickup for Oregon. I think it'll help them going forward.
1: Oregon has uh, 11 verbal commitments, seven of them now signed. He's the first receiver or... The number one receiver right now in the commit group because of some um, decommitments at other other guys. We should also quickly note uh, Kawika Rogers also committed, a three-star offensive tackle from Hawaii, a Polynesian Bowl player as well. So two. This is actually uh, Oregon's fourth player now in that All-American game, which will be played Saturday evening, late night, 9:30 or 8:30 our time, Pacific time. Uh, if you want to watch that, um, you have Ben Roberts, Trajan Williams, Justice Lowe, and Kawika Rogers now playing in that game. Uh, Kaweka Rogers, real briefly, offensive tackle, 6'6". He would have been, I think, the fifth heaviest player on Oregon's roster in 2021 at 327 pounds, a massive human being.
2: Yeah, we talked about Oregon's need on the offensive line. This is a player, by the way. I really didn't even know who he was until. Yeah. He, I mean, it was. I mean, Justice Low is a, a player, you, like you said. You identified him in the fall during a, a game in Eugene. Um, Rogers, I identified while sitting at Matthew Knight Arena, preparing to cover a women's basketball game, or was that? I don't even remember, Jared. Was that during the game? Um, it was. It was it right. Was, that it was during game. the game. He committed. Right. We. Yeah. So um, yeah, my. <laughs> My knowledge of him was far less, I guess, than even Lowe's was going into this. So, um, But at, at a position of need. I mean, they, they need to find offensive line bodies. We also saw Logan Sagapalu um, announce a transfer out um, the day following. I guess on I guess that was on, on Tuesday. Uh, I don't have a whole lot more to say on him just because I think it, it, he's kind of more of a project. But projectable is his size. And, you know, to steal a quote from – Kelly Graves about the height of a women's basketball player 6'6 330 is going to be 6'6 330 the entire game. So um, that's a good building block right there. At least you're bringing in a guy who's got some great size measurables. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Go ahead. No, you're good. I was just going to say, he's he's a guy that, that Hawaii, Arizona state, and I believe Fresno state had also offered uh, before he committed to Oregon.
3: Yeah. I think this is a, a big project player. It's simple as that, um, but you know you can't teach height, can't teach size like that. Um, I, I did watch a bunch of his tape. Um, I, I'm not familiar with the level of competition in Hawaii football. Um, I feel like it probably varies from really good to not that great. Um, and mm-hmm. but he had certain moments where he was just mauling players. Um, so that kind of gets you excited of of that he actually can. Can use his size and, and his his speed to kind of get out on the edge and, and set some set some corners, uh, really kind of move some people around, which is a really good thing to see. Because um, I feel like oftentimes you you'll, you'll get a player who's a project who's just like just pure size, and they just won't really know how to how to use it and use it effectively. Uh, with Rogers, I feel like he's he's almost there, and so that could potentially just be a helpful person down um, at the end. Uh, We mentioned that Logan Segopoulou entered the transfer portal. Uh, I think that Rodgers is just somebody who's purely depth for right now. Um, Not saying that he can't turn into anything, but I think this is just another depth piece for Oregon in a positional uh, probably a position of need for depth with offensive line. Um, They got a lot of returners coming, but next year most of those players are gone, if not all of them. So it's always important to add depth when you can. And I think that this is a perfect situation to do so he
1: he walks into a scenario where they don't need him to be ready right away i think that's what makes this enticing is that he's got the he's got the 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 measurables and the skill set to be pretty good if you give him the time to to get there and the -hmm. beauty of it is Oregon doesn't need him to be there right now and they honestly probably don't need him to be game ready for probably two years uh if if we're being serious so he, he's got some time to develop. And I think these are the ones that you like to get because can't teach size, you can't teach strength to a degree. Um, and this guy is massive and he's mobile for his size. And now he just needs to be molded a little bit. And that could turn into a, a really special offensive lineman for Oregon if he's given the time and the ability to develop.
2: I, I had one thought, Matt, and then we can go to basketball. Just maybe shades of Feope Lalu, who's yeah. currently on the roster, where you get a kid out of Hawaii with good measurables, mm-hmm. but not a whole lot of understanding of where he's at technically. And, and we saw Feope um, almost kind him. of pushed to, into the 2D by the end of the year. So um, that could be kind of a similarity. I just thought of it as we we're talking about big Hawaiian I'm guy cool. without, without knowing much about him. So. Real Absolutely. quick on right. Feope.
3: Um, just the largest person I've ever been around, <laughs> by far. <laughs> he's he's huge. If Rogers is anything like Bayo Bay, it's going to be just like two massive humans at all times.
1: Rogers is six six and almost three hundred and forty pounds. Uh, we'll be really curious to see what he checks in at um, when he gets to Oregon in June, um, and we'll have to get Brandon Huffman on because he yeah. he broke the commitment um, at the Polynesian Bowl. Uh, I've talked to him off air and I don't want to speak too much for him, but he says he's pretty good. Um, we'll be curious to see after he gets a watch of Rogers at the Hawaiian bowl or the Polynesian bowl, excuse me for, for four or five days or just what his takeaways are on that. So look, look for something on the podcast later, uh, down the road from that with Brandon. Um, let's shift gears now t- to football, um, or er, football, basketball <laughs> men and the women. What, I don't. This is how crazy of a weekend and how big of a weekend it was for both teams. I don't know which one is the bigger story because they are equally massive. Yeah. They have, if you watch ESPN, you, you we have seen both names go across the, their ticker because of the accomplishments that they were able to get done. Let's start with the team that played most recently. I think that's the easiest way to do it, and that's that's the women who faced off against number nine UConn. Both you guys were at this game. And Oregon was the healthy team. They had all their players available for the first time all season. UConn certainly was far from healthy. They were missing three starters, the best player in the country, and Paige Buckers. Uh, and yet Oregon somehow, it didn't, it, it didn't look like it would have mattered. They won 72 to 59. Uh, maybe if UConn was at 100% full strength. But even if they had one or two of those players, I don't think Oregon would have lost that game. It was a, pr- a pretty impressive showing.
2: First off, I just want to say how fun it was to be at Matthew Knight Arena with with the fans back, and it was it was really an electric atmosphere. And it's been like two years coming for this because everybody remembers what it was like being at Matthew Knight Arena when when Sabrina was here and Ruthie was here and Satu, and those teams were top two, three, next, you know, in the nation ranking, and and they were mowing teams down, and just how special that was. It wasn't quite to that level on Monday because I think it was reported just under 10,000. And those were sellouts basically every game when Sabrina was here, pretty close. Um, but it had similar energy. And I'd love to see that because this is a totally new crop of players and they aren't totally proven. And really, it's only, as Matt said, it's only been like about 10 days since they've all been available to play. Um, and to see the, I think, to see, just to see the support locally was, was pretty special and, and, and just to kind of see how that impacted. Both games, um, you know, the Arizona game a couple of days before, another upset where Oregon had to come from behind, down 17 uh, to win. That the crowd played a huge role in that. I thought the crowd played a huge role in kind of gaining some momentum for the women's team on Monday against UConn. So, um, just wanted to kind of communicate that part because I don't think that maybe gets lost sometimes. But I thought that was one of the big standouts from just the the whole weekend was just how big the crowd was and and just, just to see the fan turnout and, and involvement in the games. I thought that was was pretty spectacular. Uh, to, to just to the UConn game, and we'll start there. This was this was kind of the up until midway through the fourth quarter, where Oregon kind of I think took a foot off the gas. I don't know, not maybe from Kelly Graves, but it just seemed like maybe mentally they didn't play quite as hard. Um, but up until that point, because that's when UConn went on a big run and, and cut a twenty-four point fourth quarter deficit down to thirteen. But up you know up until that point, I was about as well as I could expect this group to play, um, and I, I was just really taken aback by offensively how dynamic they can be when they have all their pieces and just the the, the variety of ways they can get baskets. I mean, Tahina Pau Pau, I think is one of the one of the better perimeter guards in terms of creating her own shot that I've seen certainly come through Oregon and, and just watching the sport. And she's really special in her ability to get a basket. And Sedona really, I thought, stepped up as a, as a spot up kind of 15 foot jumper. You know, that was something she did in both games to kind of stretch the court. And I thought that created opportunities for, for everyone else. And Niara obviously was, a little bit more impactful uh, against Arizona than she was against UConn. She went down in that game. I'll we'll talk about that injury probably a little bit, but her c- contributions as somebody who can stretch the floor a little bit, but also can just really dominate somebody on their hip when they're around the basket and just, you know, maybe like to see a little more consistency in some of those finishes down there. But man, she can really alter a game when she has it going. So Oregon has, I think what I came away thinking is they have kind of three players that can really change a game on offense. And, you know, that's not the way it felt at all coming into this weekend. You kind of wondered a little bit. I don't want to say we we didn't know what they had offensively, but it, it was pretty up and down. Um, yeah. And again, we hadn't seen this group play together and pow pow, I think has clearly solidified herself as that number one option. And now you have two great post players who can score and shoot India Rogers, by the way, I know she had a game winner against Arizona. She had a really bad weekend for her uh, based upon her standards. And that's coming off the weekend against Cal and Stanford, where she played a lot better. So um, when she kinda, you know, when she's clicking as well, I mean, I don't even think they were all firing on all cylinders really against UConn. If you look at the scoreboard, I mean, they, they really just had um, Tahina and Sedona really kind of on their A-games offensively. And yet they were, again, up 24 midway through the fourth quarter. And I think that's where you get excited is, is kind of where this projects out in terms of when, once there is more game time and there's more continuity built. Because, again, this is a group that's really like third game of actually having all its pieces and playing together or fourth game. Of kind of having that component. So uh, once all of it falls into place, I, I, I'm pretty excited by the the ceiling of this group. I think they can really compete with with a lot of teams. And, you know, if they kind of, if they can find a, you know, find their footing and stay healthy throughout this and get in the NCAA tournament, I, I think they could be a team that, that does some damage. I don't know how far they'll go, but I mean, I think we've seen the ceiling the last couple of, of times out is, is to at least compete with these final four caliber teams. I mean, they just beat two teams that were in the final four last year. So that sort of speaks mm-hmm. to the ceiling. The, the weird thing about
3: this past weekend for men's and women's basketball is that they both had like overlaying clouds to all of the wins. Like the men's yeah. team had no fans in Los Angeles. Um, Oregon against Arizona, there was the, the coaching staff arguments between uh, players and, and coaches. And then against UConn, it was the fact that UConn was without uh, Christian Williams and Paige Bukers. Um I think it, UConn's 100% healthy. That game is extremely close. Um, yeah. I don't, I honestly might lean, I might lean UConn just because paid Buchers is the best player in the country. And she's, you know, averaging over, or she was for the six games she played this year, averaging over like 22 points a nine and six assists. Um, but still she wasn't playing and that's how you play the game. You don't play with imaginary people. Um, and Oregon just dominated. Uh, it all started in the second quarter. Um, I think at one point, um, so UConn started the game on a 10 to nothing run led 10 to nothing. And then. Oregon came back and at one point was up like uh, 20, 24 to 14. So they went on a 24 to four run. Um, and that second quarter where Oregon outscored UConn 24 to 10 was the difference maker in the game to me. Um, UConn turned the ball over nine times in the second quarter, made just five field goals were five for 10 from the floor. Um, it's just very unlike UConn. Gino REM at the end of the game was just, you know, was not very fond of his guard play, and uh, neither was I while watching the game. Just really uncharacteristic Yukon tendencies of turning the ball over. But credit to Oregon's defense for keeping their hands up and, and keeping their hands in the passing lanes and deflecting passes and making life kind of miserable for some of these Yukon guards. Um, Tahina Pow Pau, at the end of the first quarter scored like the last eight or nine points. At the end of the second quarter, or the middle of the second quarter, Sedota Prince had 10 of 12 or 12 or 14 points in the second quarter. And she was electric again. Um, Against Arizona, she was really impactful on the defensive end as well as the offensive end. Um, Against UConn, she was certainly more impactful offensively, just hitting 15 to 18 foot jump shots at the top of the key or on the wings, Um, just being used as a facilitator at the top of the zone in the middle of a 2-3 defense. Um, She was just spectacular again. It's as simple as that Um, when she gets hot, there's few players in the country, I think that are as dynamic as her offensively, especially out of the low block and especially with the jump shot. Um, But Tahina Pow Pow might be kind of close now. Um, Oregon started really slow from distance uh, against UConn, but uh, Pow Pow and company turned it up. Um, She can hit from anywhere on the court. Uh, She has an unbelievable first step Yukon guards just literally couldn't stay in front of her. And then when she gets downhill, she's usually too fast for an opposing center or power forward to slide in and, and kind of deflect her shot or make her make her shot more difficult. And she just has a lot of uncontested layups that you don't see at this level because of her speed and because of her handle and her, her ball make or her ball handling ability. Um, she had a great hesitation move in the third or fourth quarter. I can't remember which it was um just coming off the wings a slight pull up hesitation dribble and then right by the defender it was beautiful just first truly quarter. a great play it was the first quarter
2: yeah it was it was to, it was to cut it to one and then she hit free throws to go up i think fair enough yeah. it was
3: marvelous but that's you know that's the type of player she is she can have that uh, like and one street ball move in the middle of a game and have not have it have any consequences on the team just in a just an easy layup for her um and then you know, just a, a lot of credit to the rest of Oregon. Uh, obviously, those two players were great, um, but you know, Kylie Watson finished the game with the highest plus-minus on the team. Um, Kelly Graves had a lot of great things to say about her after the game. Uh, she was just uh, everywhere on defense, really, um, keeping her hands in the middle of the passing lanes, going up for rebounds, strong contests, um, just playing her role as as an energy ball, really, and um, coming in providing those specific traits that maybe niara saboli and sedona prince don't provide but when you put both of those on the or you put watson and saboli and watson or prince on the court together they have these um, this ability to to hit the best of both worlds on offense and defense um just a really good standout performance from oregon much needed um and that marked it uh 4-0 for the ducks the men's and women's against top 10 opponents which is Pretty remarkable
1: both games um against arizona and yukon sedona prince had a pretty big impact scoring the basketball she had 14 points against yukon she had 16 points against arizona i think it was her play late in that arizona game that maybe gave the momentum for the comeback um just What's the impact here with with Sedona? She's not in the starting lineup. Has she kind of found her spot And you know, it's not who starts the game. It's always who finishes. And the last two games, she's been pretty impactful in the way she's been able to help Morgan finish games. Um, is, is this maybe the, are they finding their sweet spot now with how to use her and Sobley together? Yeah, it's, I think it's, they're still kind
2: of figuring it out. I mean, it's, it's interesting because Prince came out of the lineup um, well, she didn't play against Stanford and Cal because of the positive te- COVID test. And then I think to, just to get her legs back, they didn't want to start her in these last games. But I don't know. I mean, I think, and because she had started the 11 games before that, I kind of think this works though a little bit because what we saw against Arizona in both halves were kind of slow starts by your starters. And then you bring in Sedona a couple minutes in and she kind of is a spark plug. So. It could probably. I think it can kind of work, and some of it will be matchup related because the lineup they're starting now, they don't have a six-seven player on the court. They go Sydney Parish is six-two, um, so they kind of start small and then have the. I, mean, I think honestly, like regardless of starting lineups, the fun thing from these last couple of weeks of now seeing all the players in place is just the variety of lineups they can play. Like, I get pretty excited and, and jazzed and geeked up thinking about. Okay, if they play a team with a really big front line, they can—they've got four or five bodies to throw at them. But if they play a team that's, you know, maybe smaller but can really stretch you out, like Miara can play center pretty comfortably, and Kylie Watson could probably play center pretty comfortably if, if you wanted to really go small and spread the court. Um, you know, Sedona's a tough matchup for a team that's small on that side, and she's probably uh, at a disadvantage defensively if she has to guard somebody who's capable of stretching the ball, you know, the court or. Or putting the ball on the ground defensively, she's she's better if she's. I hate to say it, she's pre, she's pretty good defensively. She can just kind of put her hands up and defend the rim. But if you ask her to do more, that's I think looking for problems. But no, I think absolutely you're kind of figuring some of the stuff out here. And I, I think I, you probably the thing that'll be nice for this group is to is to kind of gel not against top ten teams. Um, you know, they, they they played four games yeah. basically with their pieces. Three have been against top ten teams, and they've won two of them. Um, the schedule really opens up for them coming up here against the Washington schools. These are games that I don't want to disparage those programs. They should win, but Oregon should beat these teams pretty handily. And, you know, if everything's kind of on, if everybody's available, and again, there are some questions and concerns about Niara and her knee. Uh, Kelly Graves is kind of, at least his initial reactions after the game, kind of, I don't, I don't want to say dismissed the injury, but sort of thought she would be fine and kind of put an optimistic or hopeful tone to it. So I hope that proves to be correct because, I'd love to see this group play a couple of teams that they're, they're just better than, kind of similar to what we saw with Cal, and let them kind of just get out and, and run and, and get up early and, and kind of build the lead and not worry about the result as much and just worry about kind of figuring out these rotations, because I still think you have to figure out your lineups. I mean, shoot, you're kind of you're reaching the, the heart of conference play now, and, and you're really just starting to get on the, the tip of the iceberg of kind of who this team is identity-wise. Yeah, and you
3: might not even be able to be there if Saboli's injury is more than what Kelly Graves indicated. Um, but in terms of where I think Sedona Prince's role is, I I'm I'm not sure because I clearly think that they started to bring her off the bench because of you know coming back from a positive COVID test, and whether she had symptoms or whether she didn't have symptoms, she's you know she didn't play basketball for a week straight, a week and a half straight. And so that's always problematic in terms of getting just back on the court and getting back and, and your cardio health. Um, so they probably brought her off the bench for those reasons. It's worked out really well because that is probably I uh, probably one of the most talented players to come off the bench in the country um, because yeah. she's you know at points she can be one of the best players in the country really. Um, but and it's really helped because of Oregon's slow starts offensively. I mean, they got down ten to nothing against UConn, and uh, they uh, against Arizona. I think it was, it was it was another slow start, but then again, Arizona's defense is is one of the better's and uh, absolutely one of the best in the in the conference, and really could contend nationally with anybody. Um, that's just the type of team that they are. But you still saw how productive Prince was against that type of defense, and I'm I'm not sure what her role going forward is. I think I wouldn't mind seeing her come off the bench. I don't necessarily look at Oregon's bench and see anybody who I can, who I can guarantee can give me 10 to 12 points a night. And if Prince is that person, that, that can work. Um, I worry about Sydney Parrish starting at the four. If she has to go against somebody who's a, a strong power forward, who has a low block tendency and just posts up, I think Oregon could get decimated there all night long. But if they, if they go against another team that's a bit of a spread offense in terms of you know, shooters, shooters on the outside, one center on the inside, I think that could be all right for Oregon. Uh, it's as soon as a team like UConn, who has, um, who has size, who has height, who has talent on the low block, starts to you know, bang down low, Parrish is just going to get you – know, that's just not her specialty. That's just not where, where, what she was brought on to do. And she has great size and has a great shooting touch as well, which is a lovely combination. But she's not a true power forward. Um, I would love to see her start three more often than not. <clears throat> but for Prince, um, I think coming off the bench is just going to – I would just uh, – let's see how it goes for a couple more games. And if Oregon's offense to start games is so bad that they really need a spark plug initially, then – You look for it. Um, I also think that just the slow starts from Niara and the shooting woes from India the last two games. Um, And, you know, Tahina Pau Pau was slow to start against UConn. Um, Everybody couldn't hit a shot. That's why they started 10 to nothing. Fun fact, when you don't make a bucket, you don't score points. So we'll see how it goes the next couple of games. But, yeah, I agree with you, Eric. They just need people who, or they need to face teams who just aren't UConn. It's as simple as that, too. Another good, fun fact is playing really good teams is hard. Um, so <laughs> and the Washington team should be a, a test, but not as big of a test as Arizona and UConn back-to-back.
1: Yeah, Oregon's from the women's side, their upcoming games here. Um, it's going to be a wild and crazy stretch uh, for both teams in about a six-day period. They, The women, first off Friday night, they play the Huskies Sunday afternoon. Up in Pullman, they play Washington State. And then, guys, while we were recording this, uh, a rescheduled game has been announced. Uh, Oregon will host Utah on the 26th, which is a Wednesday at 11 a.m. in Eugene. And then Friday, they play UCLA. Sunday, the 30th, they play USC. Both those LA games are are at home. And so they've got an opportunity where they play no one above the top five in the conference um, in conference standing. So like you said, getting some games against some opponents that they should beat up on. This is the time. Uh, It'll be curious to see where they're at when they come out of this Um, real quick before we shift over to the men. They're not ranked right now. Yeah. I think they'll get there by the end of the year, but just what's Eric, what's kind of the, the tournament vibe right now for this women's team.
2: It's kind of wild. They're twelfth in the net ranking, so I mean they're they're in position to potentially. I mean I know this is something that, that that Oregon would really like, which is to host women's basketball. You get the opportunity to host if you're if you're a top four seed for the first two rounds. Um, that's kind of where I think the goal should be. Is if you can get to that point where you can you can host tournament games in Eugene, that that that's huge because um, it's it's tough to travel. And, they, and prior to these last couple of games, I think that felt a little bit out out there it was definitely not something that was being projected. the bracketology had them eighth ninth kind of seed kind of range I think they probably squarely move up to a five six seed kind of thing and I think again with their ceiling and if they can they still have two games against top 10 teams remaining um, at Arizona and then hosting Stanford later in the in the month of February if they can win one or both of those games and take care of business basically and not slip up too many times against some of these lesser opponents. I think they can get to that kind of threshold i don't i think it's i think it's too much to ask them to be a one two or a three seed probably um unless they really just get hot and and honestly like almost run the table probably need to run the table to be a one seed period with five losses just just the way it goes even though you mm-hmm. could argue four of those five losses were, were had with you know basically all your key players not playing which is just a tough break but again as as jared said earlier you can't pretend to play with imaginary players you, you play who you've got and Oregon played the months of November and December, really with, without its three best players and, and took some losses and lumps because of it. And, and now they're basically healthy. And I think if this group again stays healthy, I think they go on a run. And I think it's not outlandish to suggest they can be a, a top four seed.
1: All right, let's shift over here to the men now. Um, another big week for them and a, a, a stretch where they've now won five straight games in a row. Um, it, it started off last week with a win at Oregon State. They won by two points, um, 78-76. Eric Williams did a three-pointer with like 11 or 14 seconds to go to break a 74-74 tie, and then Oregon held on um, to win the game. And then number three, UCLA, they win that one, 84-81 and overtime, almost gave it away in regulation, uh, probably should have, but they found a way to. To fight through that adversity and win, and then they dominated USC start to finish, uh, much like the UConn game. The lead was much wider than it, it ended up being a 10 point 79 69 victory, just because Oregon lit up a little bit in the final few minutes and USC tacked on some points. Um, let's start with you, Eric, and then Jared, I want your thoughts too. Mm-hmm. Since you're more focused on the women, um you're you're probably the one that's the most relatable to the average fan and i know you're not but Mm -hmm. does this weekend at all catch your attention and make you tune into the next couple of weeks and make you kind of refocus your attention on the ducks because there was a lot of hype going into the season this was a top 12 team they were they were viewed as a dark horse final four team like capable of getting there and then a December and end of November that was as bad as we've ever seen for Oregon basketball came through. And this team at one point was six and six, um, far from being ranked. They're still not ranked, but how much does this you feel like will, will grab the attention of the, of the person that maybe stopped tuning in in early December?
2: I was going to say, I was, I, for the first time this year, I was getting texts regarding men's basketball. Finally. You know, usually I get a lot of men's and women's. I'm still getting women's basketball texts because that's what I cover. But people are excited about this. People were invested in watching these games, and I think the fact that they played. So I mean, I think the fact that they won that game at UCLA first uh, had a lot more eyes on the. I know, and I we've talked about this already. The tip time for USC was unfortunate because it was so late. But I, people stayed up for it, or at least I know some people stayed up for it, and and I think that was in part because of the success they had a couple of the days earlier. So i would imagine it should have a big role in that and kind of like the women i know the 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 men's team has had kind of a different year because the women had some injuries and key players out the men's team had some starts and stops and so much roster turnover from last year this is a completely new team but and this is the text i started getting was kind of oh it's the dana altman time where he kind of starts figuring it out and this is actually a little early for 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 dana altman season this is probably two or three weeks early for, for Dane Alton kind of figuring it out, which is why I think some people maybe were skeptical if they could pull the road sweep like they did. But um, I, I I think so. I mean, I, I'm, I'm certainly invested. I've watched most of the games and most of them for the duration already. But I I, I certainly plan on, on tuning in for all the games coming up. And I was pretty bummed, to be honest, with the postponement for, for Thursday's game because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the momentum you build off of from – those two wins on the road, I guess three, because you can throw on the Oregon State game, um, you kind of lose a little bit of that with a, with a postponement. I mean, that kind of stinks. And uh, you hope that game can get replayed as well, because Oregon does. I think Oregon, with those wins, is, is, is pretty comfortable in terms of making a tournament. Um, but you need every win you can right now if you're Oregon in both in both men's and women's basketball. And these postponements, they really stink from that perspective. So, um, And also, just an opportunity for the home crowd to come back and welcome yep. the heroes who just gone out and vanquished, <laughs> they don't get that opportunity. They have to delay it a couple of days. And you just hope that game doesn't get postponed because the way this is working, it seems like they come, they come in tandem pretty frequently with, with these traveling partners postponing. So um, I really hope they get to play Washington this week. That's what I'll say. And, and I, and I, I had a really fun time watching this team come together um, in part because they're starting to figure out the roles we talked about on the women's side of like, Tahina Pow Pow and E.R. Sobley and Sedona Prince kind of solidifying themselves as the the key offensive players. Will Richardson has clearly become that for the men in terms of like the offense runs through him. And when he's clicking, like he's a Pac-12 player of the year candidate. I don't think there's any question. I mean, he proved that the last three or four games out. If he can play at that level and maintain it, Oregon can win a ton of games and and he should be honored and, and recognized you know, regionally and and maybe even a little bit of national attention if he can keep this up. And what he's been doing has been really special offensively and um, especially against USC, just his ability to get to the rim kind of whenever he wanted to. Um, Similar to what we're talking about with Pow Pow against UConn, it's how many times did he just find uh, a mismatch against maybe a bigger defender and then just kind of brutalize that guy and get to the basket um, for a a layup. Um, I mean, he he is a is a, a bucket getter and I thought that was one of the things that really stood out to me was Oregon kind of felt like it was lacking that for Parts of the season of kind of who's the core offensive guy and he certainly has has solidified himself there. That was what we expected going into the year, but it was a big weekend for Will and kind of solidifying that role. Yeah, this is uh,
3: that's exactly what happened. This is Will Richardson solidifying his role as the alpha dog. That's what everybody has wanted, um, probably for the last two years, I would say, to, to for him to really step up and become an alpha dog, or have some some sort of alpha dog capacity. Um, he has all the talent. Uh, he can shoot, he can dribble, he can make the right reads. Uh, he's a, an average defender, which is all you really need sometimes in Dana Altman's system. Um, but yeah, the last two games, I think it all started in, in the overtime period or the, at least the, the back half of, a, of the second the second half, back half of the second half of the UCLA game where Richardson and Jacob Young really started to step into the roles that you would hope that they would have stepped into already. Um, But yeah richardson against usc was just great uh phenomenal night um really efficient from from beyond the beyond the beyond the arc from the floor free throw line um that's exactly what you want to see from him and it is a little early for dan altman time but this it's like clockwork and he said it every year um i might put a reminder in my calendar and see where we are (laughs) on like january 14th of next year just to see if that's uh as, as true of a statement as i think it is um but it's, it's, uh, it's about time. Um, this team I know is, is, has a lot of, a lot of roster turnover, but it also has a lot of returners um, compared to other Dana Altman teams. In my opinion, um, they, they bring back a lot of guys who know the system and were contributors the last two years and Richardson and Eric Williams, the Dante, Frank Epnon, you know, th- those are that's more than the average Dana Altman team in the last five years brings back. And so for it, to, for it to take this long, I know fans and, and even me, have a little bit of a frustration effect because you look at the roster, Dana is the head coach. Um, that should be a, a good team. It may not be, you know, like the best team in the country or may not the best team in the back 12 because UCLA is, is really, really talented. Um, but that should be a good team. That should be a top 25 team all year long. So for the season to start out the way it did is really disappointing, but it's it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Um, and this could be this. It's a shame, like Eric, like you mentioned, that the Thursday game against Washington State was canceled because that's a momentum effect. You know, five game winning streak, four straight games at home against lesser opponents than UCLA and USC. Similar to the women's basketball side of things, where you go from playing Arizona and UConn, and now you go to Playing the Washington teams just like the men's team, so that's unfortunate. But Oregon will still have a chance to win, like you know, nine straight games and really solidify their tournament contention. Um, and I really hope that game against Washington is played on on Saturday. Um, I think that'll be just a, a really fun game in general. Um, and I, I would I would argue that the fan interaction is probably at a all time high right now for this season. Um, yeah. I think the win over UCLA really solidified that. Um, I think most people, including myself, were a little skeptical of USC. Um, they didn't really have like a star player to their name, like uh, Jaime Hawkins, or Johnny Juzang, or Tiger Campbell that UCLA has. They have I- Isaiah Mobley. Um, but that's more of like a, a, a glued-together team, really good chemistry, You know, people move in the right ways, have the right parts. Um, so I think once once Oregon beat UCLA, I think there was a lot of growing momentum that they could go and and then beat USC as well. And I'll, I'll mention how the the no fans thing happens. You know, you have to find your own way to get up for a game like that. So yep. it's not it, Oregon found their way. USC's got to find theirs. Um, and I I don't know for all the USC games that I've watched. For basketball, at least, it never really seems like there's a lot of people there anyways. Um, <laughs> I could be completely wrong, and I'm sure if no, some USC you're not fans that you're not if that some USC fans hear me, I'm sure I'll, I'll get some stuff on it for tw- on Twitter. But uh, unless it's against U- or UCLA, where it's actually a rivalry, I will respect that and say it's a real rivalry between UCLA and USC. Um, doesn't seem like there's too many in there to begin with.
1: There, there was no problem for USC blowing Morgan out last year in empty arenas because that happened, um, twice. So I I don't think you can argue that teams are a little different. Yeah. But I mean, Oregon was ran out of the gym both times when they played USC in front of no fans. So, um, that shouldn't be an excuse on their end. And Eric, back to your Will Richardson comment, um, he is averaging almost 20 points, two tenths off in the last five games for Oregon. He's shooting over 50% from the, from the three point line in the last five games uh, this season. He has set his career high twice now with 26 uh, on nine of 12 shooting against Utah. And then he had 28 on nine of 15 shooting. He made five threes in both of those games. Um, And, we should also note he's he's playing really well on defense as well. He's had a couple multiple steal games in the last four. Um, he's averaging, uh, I think, a steal and a half per game in the last four games for Oregon. Um, goes down to just over one and a third in the last five, which is their win streak. Um, he has figured things out here. And we should also know another person that's, in my eyes, that's really – I think been a big catalyst behind the scenes for why Oregon is playing so well. And that's in Folly Dante. Um, he, he showed up as a five-star and he played sparingly as a freshman. Uh, he played in 12 games for the ducks, 13 minutes per game, averaged just five and a half points per game, battled tendonitis throughout the year. And then last year, uh, he averaged eight points per game and just almost almost six rebounds and over a block shot per game and seemed to be rounding into form, but then tore his ACL in the sixth game of the season. Um, and that really slowed his development. And this year, um, it, it's been a little bit of a, of, a, of a journey. You know, his first couple of games, he didn't do much. He played just nine minutes against BYU. He had eight points against Chaminade, but that's Chaminade, a D2 school. Um, against St. Mary's in Houston. He, he had just nine combined points and 30 minutes of play. Um, but in the last couple of weeks, he has, he looks different. And he's now giving Oregon a legitimate back to the basket game, a go-to score down on the block. He had 12 points the last three games uh, each. He's missed just one or two shots in his last two games. Um, a tremendous guy and a big player who's now rebounding, who's defending, and against USC now blocking shots again. He had two against USC. I, I think this is Will is kind of the the guy that makes everything turn. Um and Folly Dante might be the guy that elevates Oregon from being a tournament team to maybe being one that could try and get a seven, six. A five seed if they go on some crazy run the rest of this year.
2: That's right where I was about to go whenever you tossed it to me with some and folly love because it's it's justified. I it, Oregon has needed I mean I think you know, one of the things that stood out the last couple of years, Matt, since you know the the final four year, they had Kenny Wooten, obviously great rim protector, great defensive big. They haven't really had a back to the basket offensive guy they can rely on, and and Folio and, and with the combination of he and Frank Kepnom can protect the rim a little better. I mean, I think that's a thing that really stood mm-hmm. out this weekend was Kepnom. We haven't really talked about him. He had four blocks against USC. I know yep. he doesn't do a whole lot else. Um, he's a great effort guy, he rebounds and block shots, kind of the Kylie Watson, maybe comparable. All you want from
3: a backup big. That's there it. There you go. Rebound, block
2: shots. Kylie and Frank have done a great job of that of late. Um, But, like, I just think Enfali's been awesome. I mean, Mm -hmm. you talked about the 12 points he's had. He's not even – I mean, he doesn't need the ball to score that much. He he scored 12 points on six field goal attempts, five field goal attempts, and seven field goal attempts. Um, I mean, that's just extremely efficient offensive basketball. Um, And as you said, he's rebounding at a higher level, had a a double-double in there against Oregon State. I I, I think he's been tremendous, and that's been very needed. Again, I think the – caliber front court player has always, has been pretty good under dame altman since he's gotten here but the production specifically the last couple of years hasn't been quite what you've wanted it to be um but now you're able to get a player who could help you on both sides and that's 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 big I, I don't think oregon has traditionally had too many players who can excel on both ends of the court on offense scoring the ball around the basket and defensively defending the rim at such a high level so i know it's a four game sample size but i'm really encouraged and again, I think kind of how much can he carry this over? What's the momentum here? Can he turn this into a thing where he he finishes the year kind of as somebody who averages 11 points and nine rebounds in a block? I mean, if he can do that for the duration, Oregon's going to be in great shape. And if he can step it up a little bit, maybe he's averaging 12 and 10 or 13 and 10 or something like that, then you're seeing somebody who really, really changes the dynamic for this Oregon team on, on both sides. I think another thing that really helps Nafale on offense is Quincy
3: Guerrier is, is a stretch four. I know he's not shooting a high percentage from, from three, but he's at least along the perimeter and giving Nafale all the space in the world to operate in the low block. Um, and Nafale's been doing, uh, he's been having these really efficient games against actually good defenders. Um, you know, he fouled, he fouled Cody Riley almost out of the game uh, pretty easily against UCLA. Um, Isaiah Mobley was his primary defender against USC and Alatiche against Oregon State. Um, I don't know if he was his primary defender or it was at least a weak side help. Um, that's, those are formidable opponents in the, in the Pac-12. And, but if you put him against somebody who's just not a great defender or where they have to double team, um, he can get you 20 and 10. I don't feel like that would be much of a problem. Probably 20 points on, on 13 shots too. And at the same time, he can—he's a great passer as well, which I think is one of his most underrated traits. Is that he's over the years learned to recognize a double team and make the pass out to the perimeter to, to whoever it may be. Um, yeah, he's been tremendous for them. Um, a lot of, like him and Jacob Young really stepped up in the last couple of games. Just, just shot making—that's that's that's really what it came down to. Um, first half of the season for Oregon just so many open looks so many misses um layups mid-range jumpers whatever the case may be and they've finally just been able to shoot effectively and you see the results uh, eric williams jr too he's he's finally looking like he's feeling healthy um he's had a lot of really really good rebounding performances recently especially against oregon state i think he was in the double digits um to get that out of your starting three your small forward is awesome um He's got and he's got a great stroke, too, from the perimeter. If he can start hitting his shots and just shooting like a 40% clip from deep, that's going to be massive for Oregon's implications moving forward. Um, you don't know what you're going to get from Davion Harmon every night, but if he can get you like the 16 points he got against USC, you'll take that every single day of the week. Um, this is a team that if they can all start connecting and all start hitting their shots, um, not at some crazy level, just a very general like 48% clip. This could be a really special team.
1: Real quick about Devian Harmon. Um, the first couple of games, he, he struggled from the floor. He had just one game where he shot above 40% in the first one, two, three, four, five, six games. One game where he shot above 40% from the field. That was against Chaminade, um, a D2 school, when he shot 55 Opening game, he had fifteen point fifteen points, but he needed fifteen shots and made just four of them to get there. Um, he, he went three of ten on three in that game: thirty three percent, twenty eight percent, fourteen percent against Tucson. He didn't make a shot. He went zero for three. And since that time, he's I, I think he's learned to pick his shots better, and it's led to him being more efficient. Um, in the next. 11 games, I think, or eight games. He has just one, he has two two games where he has shot less than 40% from the field, 45%. Um, he has really turned things around. And lately, 54 against USC, 50% against Oregon State, 45% against Utah. And co- coincidentally, it's leading to him scoring more. He had 16 against USC. He had 10 against UCLA, 10 against Oregon State, 11 against Utah. I think that's another one of those deep layered peelbacks where he's playing more efficiently now. He's not shooting as much, and his shooting percentages are going up. Therefore, his scoring is going up, and it's not falling on Will or Jacob just to do all the scoring. I think that's another important note with this team.
2: Agreed. I think we're just seeing everybody kind of find roles, take some time. I think both both the men's – I mean, that to me is kind of the thing that stands out from this week. And it just kind of seems like prior games, prior weeks and months, just kind of felt like there wasn't a clear cohesiveness or um, identity maybe. I think both teams are finding it. And it, and it takes some time sometimes. But it, I think it requires players stepping into roles. And both teams, I think we've talked about it throughout this podcast. It seems like they've – like they're figuring some things out and they're getting comfortable. And it just seems like the team's – have a different level of uh cohesion and camaraderie and it seems like they understand on the court the chemistry better um, it's just something that stood out to me and i think Harmon's a good example of that a guy who came over as a a focal point of an oklahoma offense and, and now he's kind of taken a, a back seat a little bit to three or four other players at oregon and that maybe takes some time and now he's asked to be a little bit more of a um, you know, a lead ball handler a little bit more of an initiator of offense. And, and he's kind of settling in there. Sometimes it, it's not natural for everybody just to fit into different roles. And I, I applaud him. And I think he's come a long way in kind of figuring out where he fits with this group. Yeah. It's a good way to look at it. Just everybody finding their roles.
1: All right. It's good to do it for us here on the Austin audibles podcast. Thank you for listening to today's show. Look forward to a Friday edition. Maybe it'll be a recruiting one because it's already shaping up to be another really big recruiting weekend for Dane Laning and the Oregon football program. Who who knows? We'll, We'll decide on what the format is later on this week. But until then, you've been listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Talk
2: to you later, folks. Peace.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.